Not today, Bubba. Go get him, Bubba. Love you. Not today, Bubba. Gordy, Gordy, can I bother you for a second? Well, folks, before I break into an obnoxiously loud all right, folks, to get this show started, let me just go ahead and remind you that the Brilliantly Dumb Show is brought to you by Postmates. From an early morning breakfast burrito to a bottle of wine after work, sometimes you just need what you need delivered fast. That's where Postmates come in. Now, promo code BROBIBLE. That's BROBIBLE. B-R-O-B-I-B-L-E. No space. BROBIBLE. Gets you $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. That's promo code Bro Bible for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days postmate that. All right, folks, coming to you live. You know the drill here. We do this on the Brilliant Dumb Show Tuesday after Friday, Tuesday after Friday, Tuesday. Oh, right, Grace, you're right. Grace is in the back screaming at me, Robbie, it's Monday, it's Monday, and she is right. We do this here on the Burnley Dumb Show, Tuesday after Friday, Tuesday after Friday, and sometimes Monday. Why are we releasing a podcast to you guys Monday? The answer is Big Dick John Taffer. I could not be more excited for the interview you guys are about to get with Bar Rescue's very own John Taffer. This guy runs the bar industry. If you don't know John Taffer, you sure as hell should. Now, we have the Darren Williams interview dropping tomorrow, which is Tuesday, which is absolutely spectacular. That was a blast. Today, I said, Grace, we're not going to make them wait. We'll go back to our audio on the ones and twos Friday, doing what we do best, the day one type stuff on Friday. Give the people what they want. That's what we're here to do. We're giving you my interview here with John Taffer. We got into what the restaurant industry is going to look like after coronavirus. We talked about his show, Bar Rescue. I was able to ask the questions that I always wanted to ask. He's an incredible guest that we'll definitely have back on to the show. With that being said, happy Monday. Happy bonus podcast day today, boys and girls out there of the Brilliant Dumb Show. This is Big Game Bob and John Taffer coming to you now. In a quarantine, you, you're, you're just pedal to the metal. It's taken some adjustment. I'm in day 28 right now. Yeah, but, it's not you know, I, I've got it easy compared to so many other people. You know, I'm in a pretty big house. I got a yard, you know, in a pool. I'm here with my two dogs and Nicole, my wife. Looks so, like you're in Cooperstown right now with all the baseballs oh, behind. This is actually, uh, forgive the equipment. This is my this is my home bar. Look at you, look and, at you. Uh, On you think you got enough liquor there, John? <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, yeah, this is my life, the bar business. So you'd expect me to have a good bar at home, wouldn't you? And boy, <laughs> did you uh, you lived up to that. <laughs> now, are you ready to rock and roll here? Sure. All right, folks, so here we are, the Brilliantly Dumb Show. For the 2% of you who don't know who's sitting across from me right now, this is John Taffer. John, you ever Google yourself and see what comes up? It's fun, sure. I mean, I haven't done it in a while, but <laughs> it's fun. You know, it's it's interesting because nothing pre-TV ever comes up on me. So, <laughs> so if you Google me, it's like page after page after TV. It's almost like I didn't have a life before TV. It's that, weird, Robert. What, whatever gets you there, as long as you come up. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
So here we are, John Taffer, an American entrepreneur and television personality. He is best known as host of the reality series Bar Rescue on the Paramount Network. He is also credited with largely with creating the concept for NFL Sunday Ticket. John, with the way I see you come into some of these bars on Bar Rescue, forget about Sunday Ticket. I could see you playing linebacker for the Packers. <laughs> That's funny. I've been called the drill sergeant. I've been called an offensive <laughs> linebacker. So, yes, I've been called that. But, you know, sometimes I don't go in as hard. You know, it, it all depends upon it. Sometimes they really have it coming. Though. I'm sure you agree, Robert. You, no doubt about it. But you know what's amazing, though, John? And, and I don't think not a lot of people know this is that you played a huge part in NFL Sunday Ticket. I did. You know, in the early days, it's an interesting story if you want to hear it, Robert. Yeah, you? I do. Of course I do. It, in the early days, uh, I was had a big consulting company. I was based in Florida, and I owned uh, several sports bars, uh, 12, 14 sports bars. And that particular year, I won Sports Bar Operator of the Year. And uh, there was a company called ComSat, which was a big satellite company. had fields of satellite dishes. And they did hotel pay-per-view, and they managed all these satellite programs. And they managed the actual satellites that were in the sky, all the programming. They hired my company to do market research for what was then called out-of-market sports programming. Right. And they hired my company to do a feasibility study to see if the sports bar industry would buy, let's say, the Dallas Cowboys signal in New York or the Patriots signal in Dallas. And it was then called out-of-market programming. So my company was hired for a good amount of money, and we did a feasibility study. And in that feasibility study, we showed uh, uh, what a bar could pay for it, what percentage of bars would do it, what is the operating, et cetera. And we assembled the feasibility study with a basic plan for Sunday ticket, for then out-of-market sports program. We handed them that. They hired us a second time and said, what would this thing look like programming-wise? What would bars want? You know, How would it be structured, et cetera? And we did a second document. And while we were writing that document, something interesting happened, Robert. Compression was created. And compression was a technology whereby you could now receive multiple signals on one transponder. It used to be a sports bar had to have eight big dishes to get eight cylinders. But now I could have one low-altitude satellite dish and have multiple transponders and multiple signals, and that changed everything. So when that happened technologically, we were preparing the model. We put together the whole premise of getting an entire league. And then we d developed, you know, you would need seven monitors because there were seven games at any given time back then, you know, the morning games, the afternoon games. Right. We, we assembled the ad slick programs, the marketing programs that the bars would use, all of that, put this together and gave that to ComSat. Then they came back a third time. You'll like the end of the story. They came back a third time and said, okay, John, who will buy this? And then we did a big, thick document that was... Everybody, all the chain operations, the hotel companies, you know, all the contacts, everybody who would buy it, we gave them that. ComSat then went to the NFL to buy the rights to do it. When NFL was presented with this, they said, wow, let's do it ourselves. So they did, and I was put on the board of NFL Enterprises, uh, which is the commercial division of the NFL, and Sunday Ticket was then created. So when you first started it, you didn't know that this was then going to go to the NFL. It just kind of built up that way. Well, I knew it was football based. We knew it, but oh. I did not know. I thought ComSat was going to do it as a licensee of the NFL. I never realized that, you know, when they brought it to the NFL, the NFL, which was a wise decision, 
said, you know, these are our signals. This is our content. We should do this ourselves. Very reasonable decision by right. by, by the NFL. And then uh, I was placed on a, this advisory board, and that ComSat concept that was created by my company then became was the starting point. And then, of course, the NFL team took it from there and created, you know, everything else, including the name Sunday Ticket, which, which we didn't create. Totally transformed the way I and I know a lot of people watch Sundays. I don't even want to go to a game to a stadium because I don't want to lose out on all the other games that day where I won't do it. And it gets better and better and better with interactivity. Soon we're going to see betting platforms right in it at some point. You know, there's going to be a merger of live sports programming and gaming at some point. And it, it, it exists in some states now. And, of course, there's pockets of the country. But there's no question, Robert, you know, at some point over these years, no different than at some point cannabis was going to happen. At some point, you'll see a little betting bug or a little corner of your screen on live programming with your betting window. And, You're kind you know, of like that, a workbook? Yes, in essence, yes. And, and, you know, you, you know, I, I envision the next generation of this would be that on your screen, you'd have your little betting window. Right. On the, on the other side, you'd have a little scoreboard of the teams you're tracking. Oh, man. On the bottom, you'd have a chat window that you can actually chat with buddies on the other side of the country. Did you see that Patriots play? Blah, blah, blah. So you can play that way. And then uh, uh, the other one would be, you know, basically a betting window or something along those kind of lines. But, you know, we're seeing this kind of integration now. And my guess is, you know, that's the next level of programming is the interactivity and the gaming and the tracking and all that element will, in essence, I think, be the next generation. Football Sundays couldn't get any better than they are. John Taffer comes in. (laughs) You know, it's interesting, Robert, is with the pandemic and everything going on, Right. And there's an issue now with going to stadiums. So uh, companies like uh, 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 all these content developers like NFL, you know, they're really inspired and motivated now to come up with these things now. And it's the time to do it, no? It is the time to do it. They can engage more people. You know, they can get prices up with added features, of course. And, right. and this, this is a real opportunity for them. So, so hopefully, you know, the good side of this is that, you know, digital content is going to change. You know, interactivity is going to grow. And I think that's the next generation of entertainment. Well, and John, something that I, that I had to touch on with you that I re- really wanted to get into, speaking of the pandemic, okay, as a guy who has been in the bar and restaurant industry for as long as you have, it's clearly your passion. How upsetting is it for you to watch what's going on? Well, you know, the industry that I love has been decimated. I mean, decimated. And, you know, I fear and, and you know, I have many, many friends, that, uh, you know, that run these companies and, and many, many friends who are trendists and psychologists. And I've been talking with everybody I know these, you know, this past month. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I feel a little more optimistic than I did a month ago. Right. But but here's where I think it's going to happen. The delivery business is not going to dig us out. There's just not enough money in a delivery business and a curbside business. If a restaurant has 200 seats in it, let's say, Robert, you know, and it does 200 lunches in an hour, right. that, then you'll never do 200 deliveries in an hour. That's just not unlikely to ever happen. You'd, you just the, the, It just doesn't work logistically. Not enough so, to make up for it. It's not going to. So right. so we're going to have to open up these restaurants and we're going to open them at some point when this pandemic ends. 
people are not going to sit. You're not going to sit next to a stranger so quickly, Robert. You're not going to be shoulder to shoulder with some stranger. And God forbid somebody coughs, you're going to run out of the room. And it's going to be a cautious society is a nice phrase to use. it. That cautiousness is going to cause restaurants to have to separate tables a little more, okay. separate bar stools a little more. That's logical. Right. So, so if I have a restaurant with 100 seats, I now have maybe 60 seats. Because when you spread it out, and I look at different floor plans and stuff, when I, when I look at it and try to configure it, we lose somewhere between 40 and 60% of the seats. That's a big freaking deal. Okay, so now what I have to do is an hour lunch has to become a three-hour lunch so I can get the same amount of bodies in a room. Right. I might have to get you to agree to a 45-minute table turnover. Right, guys, you know, have to live with. Which, which people like you would say, you know, I want to support local business. You know, that's fair. Right. But but but, you know, I think and then I think a few weeks later, we add a table, Robert, and then I think we add another table. And, and, you know, I think that we evolve back into this. I'm not a doctor and, and I only know what I've been told, but I'm on a board of a hospital and I, I do have access to good information. My guess is this thing moves to the, the southern hemisphere in the summer, comes back heavily in the fall. And my hope is and I believe this will be ready for it in the fall good. medically. So it's not just this ends and everybody starts piling back into the restaurants. It's a slow process. I think so. And then you look at this. This doesn't just affect restaurants. I mean, look at concert venues, movie theaters, Broadway. So, so you know, this has a massive impact. Does Broadway now sell two seats, empty two, sell two, empty? How do we get out of this? So, you know, I think that one thing is really great about this, uh, uh, and that is the spirit that I've seen from people. When this ends, you're going to want to support that local business, won't you, Robert? Definitely. You're going to be really inclined to do that. But the world of marketing is going to change, and, and, and you'll see what I mean in a second. The future of the restaurant industry isn't what I do, it's how I do it. Meaning, if there's a restaurant that you trust, clean, sanitation, you just trust them, and their burger's not quite as good as the other guy who you might not trust as much, you're going to go for the inferior burger, aren't you? Right. So the future of, of American identity for companies is now becoming about trust. How is that package handled that was shipped to you? Can you trust it? Can you trust that restaurant? Can you trust that bar? It changes everything. So now companies have to build your trust to bring you back into the fold. So I got to do things within the four walls of that business transparently, by the way, so that, you know, I'm doing them right. that make you build that trust. I'm already seen it with delivery. There's some deliveries that I get where if it's packaged better, you almost even trust that more than another company that, that may not be packaging it the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. And food and food delivery, you know, the same type of a thing. For example, I was on national news, this is might be six, seven weeks ago, talking about a study, and it was a credible study, that 28% of delivery drivers tamper or eat some of the food. Oh, don't tell me that, John. Look at it. The, the research reports oh, are online. So, so, and that over 50% think about it because it smells so good in the car. Now, I'm not saying this to detract from the delivery people, and I'm not saying this to be negative. What I'm saying is to trust something it should have a safety seal on it when it's delivered, shouldn't it? I get upset if I don't see that. Yeah, the bag should be closed with a seal on it. Yep. They should drop it at your curb, maybe give it a little spray, right? But those are the kind of things that will build your confidence and say, you know what? <laughs> those are the guys I'm going to order from.
I want to see that thing sealed, John. No doubt about it. What about the what about the restaurants right now? Because nobody, I don't think anybody really knows exactly how long this is going to go. But what about the restaurants that when things were normal, that were just getting by, do you think they'll be able to survive? You know, in, in, in a normal world, no, no. And, you know, the government program for now is good. And a few things happened the past week that are pretty powerful uh, uh, with regard to government actions. One, business disruption insurance companies were claiming that a pandemic was an exclusion. But the language of their contracts didn't say this. This affected thousands of restaurants across the country. The president just yesterday and today said that they are attacking that issue and making the insurance companies pay. So that business interruption insurance will be a big deal to the restaurants that have that policy. But a lot don't. Right. So the other program that we have in place now gives, provides eight weeks of payroll for all employees at government expense. That eight weeks of payroll, that money, if the restaurant uses it only for payroll, rent, and utilities, that money, whatever it is, is non, uh, you don't have to pay it back. It's forgiven. The loan is forgiven. And what you do is you, it, you take your average payroll per week, and that's what they give you for eight weeks. So it's real, and it's a good amount of money. The problem is, to get to your point, Robert, is that doesn't give you the money to open again. Your refrigerators are open. Your walk empty. Your walk-ins are empty. You got to buy inventory. You got to bring people back. You got to get so there's an the next phase of the government stimulus. From everything I understand, from the people I spoke with, is going to include provisions for that. So that small restaurant that you're talking about did get the eight weeks of payroll. Right. So they, in essence, they got their rent paid. They got the utilities paid. They got their employees paid. Now we get into the second phase of stimulus where they get some allowance for inventory and opening. That's really powerful. If that next level of stimulus happens, that not only helps that small restaurant, but that moves to the farmer, doesn't it? Moves yeah. to the food distributor, the manufacturer, goes right down the supply chain. Back up that's, that's another reason why that restaurant has to open because of the farmers and the food and everything else behind it on the supply side. So in a way, that small restaurant becomes more important to all of us than it's ever been before. So the government, I believe, is taking the right steps to, to protect that and get it reopened. The issue becomes from a society standpoint, are we going to go back there at a quick enough pace? And will the government then in a, a next level of stimulus deal with shortfalls that might exist because they're dealing with the pandemic now and payroll and insurance issues and things like that. I believe they'll deal with the restart. The question is, if the restart is slow, is there another phase that deals with it then? But, you know, the restaurants, Robert, that develop trust are the ones that are going to succeed. We're building a Taffer's Tavern outside of Atlanta. It opens in July. Are you? you know, yeah, we, and, and it's opening and we're on schedule. But, you know, we have a very different kind of operation. You know, our kitchen is all sous vide. There's no raw protein in the entire restaurant. There's no hood. Nothing is touched by human hands. It's all robotic cooking. You'd think I would have developed this after the coronavirus, but I didn't. We developed it a year and a half ago. We've sold franchises in, uh, in Atlanta and Washington and other markets. There's a bunch being built, but it's the kitchen of the future. And in, in the kitchen is a webcam. You can actually open up the, the webcam on your phone and, and watch your food be cooked. And it's different, you know, it, it, the cook is in a white suit with a white hat and a white mask and, you know, everything. The servers don't touch the food. Only certain food runners touch the food. And you the were servers... doing this before Corona. Oh, I, we, yeah, we, we introduced the Taffer's Tavern franchise last summer. 
And the premise of it was perfectly sterile robotic cooking. And we created what's called is the Taffer Safe Dining System. This is me, Robert, being out and doing bar rescues and seeing this filth all over the years. So I said two years ago, I want to create the casual restaurant concept of the future. It has the safest food preparation, the most consistent food preparation, really good quality, obviously, and runs at a half the staff that a normal kitchen would run because of robotic cooking and cooking technologies. So we started developing that in test kitchens around the country two years ago, introduced a franchise last summer, signed a bunch of franchise agreements with people, and we're developing those units. And it's very different than anything you've ever seen. It's all, you know, we cook with steam, with light, with microwave, with convection, with infrared. Uh, it's a complete scientific, flawless cooking process of the best quality food you've ever tasted. So bar bar rescue, you going into these kitchens and seeing how disgusting some of them were. This is what kind of got you thinking about doing this. Yes, that I could solve all of this with the right product and kitchen design. I could eliminate that from the equation. So by eliminating raw protein and sous vide is very high quality food cooked in water ovens in a plastic bag. Right, right. Which a lot of people are starting to get now. Too. Oh, it's because it's so high quality. You know, right. It's an old French cooking style. So we do all sous vide from a central kitchen with the most unbelievable health standards. That sous vide is opened with a tool, not even a hand, put into a computerized oven and is flawlessly finished within the restaurant. So I don't have the raw food. I don't have raw protein anywhere. Everything is packaged individually. It's not touched by human hands. It's cooked flawlessly with spec quality and, and every element. It's unbelievably consistent. I use half the employees to do it. And that's, that's Taffer's Tavern. I'm not here to plug Taffer's Tavern. It just happens to be a subject that we're talking about. My point is this, the restaurants that really build your trust going forward, the ones that put a camera in the kitchen, <laughs> right? Yeah. And are transparent about this. I'm so proud of what I'm doing, Rob. I want you to see. Right. Those are the ones that are gonna succeed out of this. And the future of all of these companies is going to be trust. It's incredible. When, when you was and something that I definitely wanted to jump into and, and speaking of, you know, being sanitary and all that, speaking on bar rescue, is there ever a time where you go into the kitchen now and you're kind of used to seeing these disgusting kitchens or does it till this day just get under your skin to see how unsanitary these, these I mean, you go, you see some of these bars and it's, it's filthy. Yeah, I got to tell you, that never gets old for me. Two things really get me, and it never gets old. The dirty kitchen, because yeah. I always think of the poor person who's eating that, <laughs> right? Yeah. To me, it's not the kitchen. It's it's the person out there who's eating it, and how dare we violate that trust. And the second thing that really eggs me on is when they spend their parents' retirement. <laughs> Those are the two biggies that get me. Filth. And spending their parents' retirement, because those are the two most irresponsible things that I think anybody could do. And if I did that and you lose respect for me, you should. <laughs> right. No doubt about it. And, and even, I mean, even in the show, even like in F, just about every rescue, you see the owner just, especially in the beginning until you work with them, they're just not there. And, and you know, they'll point the fingers. Does that something that continues to get under your skin, too? Oh, to the point that I wrote a book about it. So last year I wrote a book called Don't BS Yourself. Cut the excuses that are holding you back. I got to tell you this story. You'll love this. Right on. I'm, a, I'm about 120 episodes into Bar Rescue. 
and I'm in Detroit, Michigan, and I'm rescuing a bar in Detroit, Michigan. And Robert, like many times in bar rescue, I look at the owner, this woman, and I say to her, why are you failing? And she looks at me and she says, I'm failing because of the Euro in Greece. Oh, that's rough. This, this is in Detroit, Michigan. And at that moment, I realized after 120 bar rescues, never once did one owner ever say, John, I'm failing because of me. Not one freaking time out of 120. So I said to myself, wait a minute. I just found a common denominator of failure. It's an excuse. You see, as long as she blames the euro in Greece, when she wakes up in the mirror and look in the morning and looks in the mirror, she can say, those, those sons of bitches are making me fail. But if she woke up in the morning and blamed herself and said, I'm failing because of me, she wouldn't like it. Then she'd change. So I took it to the next level and said, okay, if excuses are what hold us back or the common denominator of failure, what is an excuse? Well, an excuse is a reconciliation of a screw up. Either you did something you shouldn't have, you didn't do something you should have, or you otherwise screwed up, or you'd never use an excuse, would you? Right. It wouldn't exist. So wouldn't excuses you? are the ways that we make ourselves selves feel good about failure. But at the end of the day, whenever we blame something or someone else for our failure, we don't give ourselves a reason to change. So the whole point of don't, you know, uh, don't BS yourself, cut the excuses that are holding you back was I identified the six biggest fears that we have that everybody uses as excuses. Oh, I don't have the money. Oh, I don't have the time. Oh, it's not the right marketplace for it. Oh, I don't. In life in general. Yes. And, and how those excuses paralyze us. So to me, the common denominator of human failure in almost every case is an excuse. Because if you didn't use that excuse in the morning, you wouldn't like yourself and you'd change. And you know what? You're right, too. When you watch the show, not one of them have ever said yeah. that. How long by the time you get in do you know, even outside of the owner, how long does it take you from the time you get in there can you locate the problem? Oh, I find the problem within, uh, dare I say, a minute. I do. It's that Seriously? Sure it is. Because either it lies in two key places. Either it lies in the employees or it lies in the ownership. If it lies in the employees, it's almost always because of ownership. If it lands on the ownership, it is because of ownership. So in almost every case, that's where I go. You know, I zero in on that owner. But, you know, then there's other issues. Sometimes the place is physically beautiful. You know, the guy has a lot of pride in the building, but he abuses the hell out of his employees. You know, so you don't see that when you walk in because the place looks good. But whenever I walk into a place that looks good, that only takes a second to register. So, okay. He's got it physically together. This guy's got to be a fool somehow. His right. location is good. I, yeah, before I walk in, I know the location is good. I saw the outside. You know, is the inside a mess or not? So if the location is decent and a sign, and when I walk in, you know, I'm zeroed in pretty much on them. But, you know, uh, uh, one thing about Bar Rescue is typically by the third day, Robert, I can predict whether they're going to succeed or not. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Hold on, folks. Do not go anywhere just yet. I know I'm not going anywhere. Grace Ibrahim definitely isn't going anywhere either. We just have to interrupt this show to let you know that the Brilliantly Dumb Show is brought to you by Postmates. Postmates does anything and everything, but Postmates doesn't just deliver your standard burgers and sushi. They make my life easier. You could send these guys to grocery stores. I've seen a couple at the Staples Center. If you like the Staples Center Cracker Jacks, send your Postmates delivery guide to Section 116 for some Cracker Jacks. 
They do everything. And now for a limited time, Postmates has given you listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days if you type in promo code BROBIBLE. One word, B-R-O-B-I-B-L-E. That's code BROBIBLE for $100 of free delivery credit. No minimum purchase. Anything you need, anytime you need it. Postmate it. Move it on. You just see it in their eyes. And, you know, it's sometimes you see it on TV, but you guys see it. I get to live it. You know, it's a whole different thing. And if you were one of those owners, you know, who was a denier or a loser or spent your parents' money, and by beating you up for two days, suddenly I made you look in the mirror on your own and say to yourself, I should have never taken my parents' money. I should have never done this. I'm responsible. If some point I can get you to say that, suddenly you walk a little different. You do. Your facial expression changes a little bit. You know, some weight comes off your shoulders. You know, the guilt starts to get relieved. You start to see light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I actually see this in people's faces. Now, sometimes it's transmitted through TV, right? right? Because it's it's more visual. And other times it's not as transmitted through TV. Sometimes through TV, it looks like the guy's changed, but I know he didn't. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to bullshit me. But, but if I could say that, forgive me. Of course, John, little do you know. I mean, it'll all come out on this show. Let it rip. Great. Okay. Well, then I can fucking say whatever I want. (laughs) So... So, so I sort of know this because I've been with him for three days, Robert, you know, we've been looking in each other's eyes and, you know, I start to know your facial expressions and see your tension get relieved. And, you know, that's why I push him so far, because I'm not going to get you to change until I get you to that line. But for the guys that aren't changing, though, is it bothering you that you're putting in all this work, you're renovating their bar and they're not making the change? Sure, it does. In the beginning, it bothered me a lot more than it does now. In the beginning, yeah. I took it personally. You know, I remember when I did the Pirate Bar, I think, which was in season one, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. You know, the next day, they changed the sign back. Well, that, that really pissed me off. You know, How do you that, find that out? Huh? How do you find that out? Does somebody call oh, sure. you? An email or somebody calls me and tells me or, or, or you know, but I find out. And and uh, and people are very quick to let me know those things. You know, people send me notes all the time. I've been to this one; it's great. I've been to that one; it sucks. This one open, that one's closed. Blah blah blah. I saw this person, and I said, so it's fun when fans keep in touch and, and uh, you know talk to me about that stuff. I love it. But uh, you know, sometimes when that happens, and I say, okay, this owner's not coming on board. I get it. You know, this guy is still going to fail. I have another opportunity. I can train the employees. I can make them better. I can set them up for the next job or set them up. So I've got to find some positive. I can't walk in there just to beat the hell out of people. And that's not going to work. So I've got to have something that I believe in. And that's why I think the show has been on TV now for almost 10 years is because it's true to me. You know, I really, it is. It's it's true to me. And this is what I really want to save these people. I mean, I really want to make a difference. So if you're the owner, then hell, I'll hang my hat on the employees. Right. right? Sometimes the employees aren't great and the owner isn't great. But that guy's got two kids at home. I'll do it for them. Yeah. You know, the guy's wife at home. I got to find somebody to do it for because you can't go there to do it against. It just doesn't work that way. So I fight for whatever it is I can find to fight for in each case. Are there times when you – because you'll, you'll get up in their grill. I mean you don't hold back. Is there times where you go up to them and you think this guy's going to take a shot at me? I mean this guy's going to try and hit me? Yeah, there's, there's been a few of those occasions. But, you know, it's moments like that that I can't back down. 
Right. So no, it, boy, do you not. And it's not because of any physical macho thing. It's that I'm here to change you. You've got a serious issue and it's a personal issue or your wife is, you know, your wife is about to leave you. I mean, this is heavy duty when I get there. Right. People's wives are about to leave them. They don't have money to buy their children this. Their houses are on the line. Their cars are on the line. We, you know, those are typically the places that I go to. So I have a pretty serious reason to go at you to try to no, fix it. The trick is they have to trust my intention. If they trust my intention, then they'll give me a lot of latitude. If they don't trust my intention, they won't give me shit. So when I go in there, you know, recon night, I'm screaming, I'm yelling, I'm this and that. The next day when I go into that bar, I have to at least build enough of a connection with the owner and I that he trusts my intention, that he really believes I'm there to freaking help you, buddy. Now, this might get ugly. Right, right. <laughs> but don't forget, I'm here to help you. Uh, uh, they get that. And I'm fortunate in that way because I guess because I'm real. But, you know, I go in as me. I'm authentic. And I think very quickly they pick up on the fact that, you know what, this guy is 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 a ball buster. This guy is beating the shit out of me. He's embarrassing me. But this guy's going to help me. And, and they buy in. And I'm lucky. But it gives me a lot of latitude. And you know what makes the show so great, too? Yes, it's raw. But at the same time, there's been episodes where you've walked out without even renovating the bar. So when you're going through this, you're thinking to yourself, if this guy doesn't get his shit together, you're going to walk out what you've done. I have. Uh, you know, one of the, the most famous ones is O-Face. And that was the one where I, uh, at the last, the last day, I saw a security video of him hitting an employee. Yes, yes. I saw that. And, and, you know, that was just, and thank God I'm executive producer of my show and my network is wonderful and supports me in every decision I want to make because Bar Rescue isn't pre-planned. It's what happens there. So I don't know what I'm going to build till I get there. I don't know who I'm going to fight with till like, we don't know anything until we get there. You don't know what's going in. I know nothing going in. Really? And I'll tell you that process in a minute. But my point is, you know, at that moment, once I saw him hit that employee, I can't perpetuate that. You know, I can't remodel a new boxing ring for this guy to hit the next employee. So that justified that walkout. A few months later, he got arrested for harassment. So, mm -hmm. so, so it was, you know, what I did was validated. Here's the way Bar Rescue goes, if you'd like to hear it. Lay it on me, John Tapper. So I show up about 45 minutes before the cameras start to roll. I sit in a makeup chair, you know, my powder, my hair. They get me, John, I get dressed. Uh, I'm given literally, and everything I'm going to tell you on my mother's grave is the truth. I'm given about a one-minute briefing, maybe a minute and a half. John, the bar is owned by John. The bar is owned by Sally and Pete. Their husband and wife. They're in debt four hundred thousand. They're losing X amount of dollars a month. They're three weeks from losing their house. They have two young kids at home. The bar's been open for twelve years. That's typically all I need to know. How long has it been open? How much are they losing a month? How far in debt are they? And what's the partner of the family situation? That is about 60 to 90 seconds. I then am put in the SUV. I, get in the, I sit in the SUV. I do my recon. I, you know, whoever my experts are with me or, you know, an owner is with me, who's ever with me in the SUV is based upon story. And I'll tell you one of those in a moment. And when, when I'm finished with the recon scene, so I go in, I scream and yell, whatever I do, and I walk out. After I walk out, what people don't know is we stop the cameras, we take all the employees, we put them in vans in the parking lot, and I go in and design the bar that night. After so, you go in and see it? Correct. So now I go in, I'm with my crew, I go in that night, and I design the bar that night. I have my crew trained, they give me a piece of paper, 
that has eight or 10 pieces of demographic information on it. So I know my age groups in the market, you know, I know competitive information, just a little bit of information. And I have to do what I affectionately call as a 20 minute design. So is the wall high or what? Can I use this? Can I use that as a design feature? Can I embrace a column? What do I embrace to create the concept based upon a physical space? Right. Then what concept can I create around what I'm embracing in the oh, physical space? Right. And then I have what I call a creative thread. So now I have somewhat of a physical plan, a concept plan. Now I can start to say, okay, these are the five food items I need. These are the five kind of drinks that I need. And then all of that happens after recon that first day. We go back to the hotels. The next morning when I come in uh, on camera, you see us do staff meeting, training. Yep, everybody and recon. together. What you don't see is off camera, I'm approving every bar stool, every piece of wallpaper. I'm looking at renderings with my team and we're building the design. And the frustrating part of it, Robert, is I can't get this bar stool because I need it in 24 hours. I can only get that one. Or I can't get 100 of these bar stools. I can only get 20 of this type and 30 of this type. Because you're on that time restriction. That, 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 that's a true time restriction. You're it, is. it is. So by the end of the second day after stress test, I have to have all the furniture picked out. All the wallpapers and paints picked out, the design basically done. I have to have the recipes finished for the food vendors. I have to have the drink recipes done for the drink vendors. I have to have the logo done for the sign company. <laughs> and I have to have the, the other physical elements, the bar design, the equipment. What are we doing with the workstations? What are we doing with the? All of that has to be finished by the second day. Then the third day, which is training day. We now do that off-site. You notice we do training at another location. The reason why we do that is because we're building the bar then. So right after stress test, we come in and we rip it apart. We do remodel it in 36 hours. So we remodel it the night of day two, day three, and the morning of day four. That afternoon on day four, the same vans pull up with this cast, the employees in their blindfolds. We line them up in front of the bar and we reveal it. It's exactly like you see on TV, right down to the time sequencing. That's why we're still on television. You see, so many reality stars that I meet from shows that failed used to say to me, they don't know. You can fake stuff. They don't know. Bullshit. I have immense respect for my audience. I won't fake a fucking thing because you guys will know it. John, so everything I do real. So I mean that, that's what makes you the GOAT. That, that's what makes it so great. Well, it's, it's real, buddy, and, and I can't lie to people. I'm not going to do something. You know, I, I would tell you in candid stories of times that the show shut down because production tried to fake something and I wouldn't allow it. Because in the television business, see, production and the network, they want to know what they're buying. I get it. So they want to know it ends this way, it starts that way, this is what happens in the middle. Okay, go do it, guys. Yeah. I won't do that because I don't know what kind of bar I'm going to build until I get there. <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen with the characters until I meet them. So it takes a lot of trust for a television network to do this, to say, okay, John, you have a budget of X amount of dollars. we got a great budget. You know, we got a great crew. I travel with about 57 people, five trucks. It's a big production crew we have. And, and uh, 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 they give me the latitude with a great team around me of, you know, excellent producers and, and lighting people and sound people. And we, we don't make the story. We follow the story. And I've gotten really good at bringing the story out. Right. And that's my job as a host is I got to reveal why you're failing. Not only to you, but to them. And it's going to come out. And it's going to come out. So I just bring the story out and then I follow it. 
and, and that's really what I do as a host. And most other television hosts, unfortunately, aren't good at bringing the story out. They're just better at following it. Are there, when it's all said and done, the bar's all set, everything's going, you walk out the door, you know, they thank you and whatnot. Are there times where you've walked out the door and you've thought in your head, they're fucked? Yes. You have? Yeah, about 20% of the time. Really? Yeah. From and, when you, and when you look at, I just know it. I can tell by the dynamic of the owner, you know, that this guy is just, you know, either he's an ass, he's going to undo everything I did just because of his own ego. Right. He's not going to allow himself to succeed because of me. I've had some of those. So I leave. They change the bar back to what they do, which is unbelievable. Did you? It did in the beginning. Now it doesn't bother me at all. You know, you, 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 uh, uh, you can't fix stupid. There's a great comedian line who says that. And I get it when I here's what I, I, I find a lot of peace in. There are independent services that track the results of my show. And you can Google it. There's newspaper articles that have talked about it. There's roughly three or four competitive shows that are in the food and beverage space that are transitional. Uh, uh, I won't say the names of anyone. One of them runs a 21% success factor. The UNSA runs a 28% success factor. I run an almost 70% success factor. 70%. So, and looking at that, that's an immediate. That doesn't come from me. So, so it could be 68% now, you know, whoever. I, some, I'm sure, if they say, well, look, they're all closed now because of the pandemic, they could switch the numbers around. But we tracked it about 68 to 72% success factor for years. Uh, uh, so I'm very proud of that. So, you know, it's like the uh, 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 it's the guy, you know, if if, if the, the batter can hit 70 percent of the time, then he's very proud to talk about the other 30 percent when I don't. You're a whole famer. That's how I feel. Yeah. You know, I'm happy to talk about that other 30 percent because of the other 70. <laughs> you know, when you're not filming, you know what I thought of? And this may sound ridiculous, but it's true. Have you ever walked into a bar just to get a bite to eat or just to have a beer and your server thought you were there to rescue the bar? Oh, yeah. It's funny. <laughs> Even in an airport, if I walk up to a bar deliberately, they freak. <laughs> so, so I got to walk slower. You know what I mean? I got to walk more casually. I got to send my right <laughs> And can you tell they're nervous? Sure. You know, even when I see I'm calm and I'm just there with my wife, Nicole, and maybe we're going to have dinner and stuff, but sure. And then what, you know, what other fun things will happen? Like suddenly the cooks are sticking their head out you know, <laughs> and, and looking and, and, you know, suddenly the bartenders, are, so everybody suddenly within two or three minutes, the whole restaurant knows you're there. And, think... But you know what? These are my people. This is my world. Yep. So, I, so I love it. You know, I love that I'm there. I'm always a really big tipper, like a very big tipper. You know, I always want to send a positive message to all these places that I, that I go to. And, you know, I've never sent a plate of food back in a restaurant as a customer. You don't. I wanted to ask you that. I don't do that. I will never embarrass an operator in that kind of a way. You know, I might I might get on a server if nobody comes to my table for 10 minutes. Come on. You know, I might do that. But never have I sent a plate of food back, especially as a public figure. You know, I just won't do that to someone. If yeah. it isn't right, I might send them an email. You know, I might whisper something at the table. But, you know, I will never, ever publicly embarrass an operator that I send. And remember, that's not television, guys. In television, you know, you're about to lose your house. I'm given three days to turn your life around. Yeah. Of course, I'm going to throw food. I'm going to scream. I'm going to do whatever I have to do because this isn't about your house now. This is not about being polite. In a restaurant, it's very different than the real world. You know, I would act quite differently. I've never sent a plate of food back in a restaurant. Uh, I don't think in my life ever, uh, 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 but certainly never since I've been a public figure. That you sent it back. 
Uh, I've never sent one back. I think many years ago I might have, you know, once or twice. I don't even remember. Yeah, so I'm not going to lie and say never in my life have I. Right. But since I'm a public figure in the past 10 years, no, never. With how much your mind is working, I feel like it's almost hard for you to go to a bar and enjoy it because you're watching what could be better and what could be fixed. Is it hard to go in there and not do that naturally? Well, some, th some things will just piss me off. Sure, Robert. You know, right. I'm pretty good at disconnecting it. I am. I can be pretty good at just sitting at the table, trying to stay in my own world, do my own thing. But, you know, if something sucks, you know, I'll notice it. If something is, you know, if something is dirty, of course, you know, that's my pet peeve. That or disorganized, you know, that stuff really gets me. But, uh, no, I'm actually pretty good at disconnecting it. Yeah. I, I mean, I've even seen when there's been grease, you'll go up into the guy. I mean, you'll show him the grease. Or even okay. uh, there was a guy, there was a time that I, in in bar rescue history to me, the, the time that I just couldn't believe it. Do you remember the asshole that showed up? You just fixed his bar. It was the press box. Yes, in Chicago. Smiling in. And, and he showed up drunk. Were you, was that one of the most mind blown you've been as far as you just couldn't believe it? Yeah, but he was a jerk all week. Remember I named him Smiling Ed. Because oh, <laughs> he never smiled. And remember during stress tests, I'll never forget it. I said to him, Ed, you have one job to do tonight. In an hour and a half, I want you to smile once. Wow. Couldn't do it. And, and he couldn't do it. So, <laughs> so I named him Smiling Ed. <laughs> but yeah, Smiling Ed got what he deserved. You know, look, when you talk to Smiling Ed, He's not a bad guy. But, you know, what, what, what the thing about bar rescue is sometimes they're bad guys. Sometimes they're bad owners. If you sat and had a beer with Smiling Ed, you'd say to yourself, he's not a bad guy. And he's not. You know, he's a mellow guy. He's sort of a sad sack, if you will. But, you know, as a bar owner, he's the most disrespectful son of a bitch you'd ever meet. So sometimes this isn't about their humanity. It's about their business ownership. Other times it's the whole box. You right. know, they're just an ass to begin with. Right. Sure. But Ed, I would say, was not a jerk in that way. Ed was actually not a bad guy. He was just a terrible owner, you know, and really disrespectful to people as an owner. It's just so amazing to me that that these guys can't even, you know, and, and few. There's been few that you've had to walk out, but you do. But that they can't hold it. Through. They're about to have a brand new bar, thousands of dollars, an incredible concept done by a professional. And they can't hold it together enough yeah. to, to get the new bar. I'll tell you my favorite bar rescue story. Yeah, lay it on me. And, and this is an inside thing. I go to do a bar in Orange County, California. Forgive me, I forget the name of it, but it's owned by a couple from the Dominican Republic, Edith and, and uh, Juan, Juan, Juan Pablo. Okay. And uh, uh, the story is it that Juan Pablo has owned this bar for years. He doesn't come home at night. He's cheating on his wife all the time. She's home with three kids. She's ready to leave him. It's a completely disastrous situation. They're in debt hundreds of thousands of dollars. They already lost the car. They're about to lose their house. Terrible, terrible story, Robert. So when I'm sitting in my makeup chair and I'm getting my briefing, I say to my producer, I say, well, then let me put Edith, the wife, in the SUV. Let me do recon with her. And let's watch her husband together, her and I. So they said, fine. So I get in the SUV, I got my makeup and I'm ready to go. And this very nice lady gets in a car named Edith. And I say, hi, Edith, nice to meet you. And she has in her hand a gift bag, you know, shiny gift wrap kind of gift bag. And I said to her, oh, I thought maybe it was for me. I said, what's the gift bag? And she says, it's for my husband. It's our 14th anniversary. Oh, I said, oh, terrific. What did you get him? She says, divorce papers. Now, None of us knew any of this. 
This was a complete shocker to no me. No idea. No idea. This is Bar Rescue. So now the video monitor goes on, and Edith and I, after this gift bag exchange, we're watching her husband on a video monitor, Robert, and a nice-looking young girl walks up to her husband, who's a good-looking guy, and she says to him, are you married? And he goes, there's no ring on this finger. And I'm watching this with his wife. She goes crazy, tells me he doesn't come home at night. She starts crying and all this. So I say to her, Edith, listen to me. When you walk in that bar tonight, your husband has to think this is a new day, that you're not going to tolerate this anymore. Now, for the first time ever, I'm here. I've got your back. But if he thinks that you're going to let this slide tonight like you have every other night, this does not end. Do you get that? She goes, yes, I do, John. I said, so you need to go in there and you need to make a statement that this is enough. She goes, I get it. I get it. So she gets out of the car. She goes into the bar. Punches him in the mouth, rips his shirt open, and puts a drink in his face. And and none of this is ever expected. At the end of the episode, <laughs> Pablo gave me a letter that I still have, and hugged me on and off camera and said to me, "You were the father that I never had. Nobody ever spoke to me that way. Nobody ever challenged me like that. Nobody ever told me I was a bad person ever in my life. If anybody else would have done that, I would have kicked their ass." He goes, you were the father I never had. Thank you. He cried, hugged me. Edith tore up the divorce papers. He put the wedding band back on. And the great end of the story is three months later, I got an email that they were having another child. Unbelievable. That's Bar Rescue. And after that, I scream at the next one even louder, don't I, Robert? You know (laughs) what I'm saying? Because that hug at the end is what means everything. And if if you know you're going to get that hug at the end, and I do, then I now have the latitude to really push you, knowing at the end you're going to hug me. You hate me now. I get it. Tonight you're going to go to sleep wanting to freaking kill me. I get that. You might not even come back tomorrow. But in the end, you're going to hug me. That's that's how I keep going. When she just to even backtrack, when she hits him, what what are you doing? Are you like what's going through your mind, John? Oh, we're in shock. But you know, our job is to let reality play out. And now she's not going to punch him again. You know, she's a young little girl, so it wasn't a huge uh, a, a physical threat to him. But we let the reality play out. And then at some point, I walked in, and you know, made a comment, and I walked out with his wife, which scared the shit out of him, because now his wife had me. And now this is getting real. And the next day, I beat the hell out of him. And uh, um, uh, we we became very, very close friends. And I would tell you right now, to this day, if I called Juan Pablo, that guy would do anything for me. And they're still in business today. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And and the family's intact. And, you know, that's Bar Rescue, buddy. And, And, you know, that's why sometimes it's about a bar, but most of the time it's really not. Most of the time it's about Edith and Juan Pablo or, or, you know, Brad and Spirits or, you know, there's always a family involved and a partner involved and children often involved and, you know, futures of families and fortunes of families involved. And, you know, that's what it is to me, you know, to to you guys and very many people. It's a show about bars, but that's what it is to me. And, And I think that's why it keeps going. And it, I mean, like I said, you could just tell the passion that you have for it. And it, as you said, there's just so much more that goes into it than what people see. John, when I first signed up to Bro Bible, I knew they had a connection with you. I said, I don't care about 
whatever it is, just get me to sit down for 30, 40 minutes with John Taffer, and I got that. Well, you did, buddy. It was before, nice to talk to you, Robert. Before I let you go, this is a bucket list of mine, okay? I, I, I can't let you go without asking. It's my favorite line that there is. Can you say, you could speak it if you want to speak it, you could yell it if you want to yell it, this is John Taffer on the Burnley Dumb Show, and it's time to shut this the fuck down. I'm John Taffer on the Barely Dumb Show, and it's time to shut this the fuck down. <laughs> John, I appreciate you, buddy. You're the best. Awesome, buddy. It was fun, best, Robert. We'll do it another time. Luck to you. Take care, buddy. Take care. Well, there you have it, folks. Grace, is he not just an absolute beauty? My God, I, I, I love that man. I mean, to hear about Taffer's Tavern, he was ready for Corona long before people even knew what Corona was. I, I mean, this guy, folks, I mean it when I say it. Watch it, Bar Rescue. You will not be disappointed. He is, you know, usually somebody who is that animated. You, you know, some people may, may call that cocky. He's not cocky. He, he's the most genuine guy out there. He's just so passionate about what he does. And I tell you, what, what, a, what a privilege it was to interview that man. Another privilege I had coming out tomorrow, Darren Williams. Now, you could catch the John Taffer interview on YouTube, the Brilliant Lidham Show, as well as the interview you get tomorrow with former NBA superstar Darren Williams. Played for the Utah Jazz, played with LeBron James in Cleveland, played for my beloved New Jersey Nets, who are now the Brooklyn Nets. This was another one, just an absolute blast. This is what we're doing here, folks. Just throwing absolute heaters for you to get your day started. Again, you can watch that on YouTube, Spotify, all that good stuff. We hope you enjoyed the show, the bonus pod. We are back tomorrow for you to deliver you another phenomenal interview. Folks, let's keep this train just moving right here along on the Burnley Dumb Show. I'm Big Game Bob. That's Grace Ibrahim. We will see you tomorrow, folks. 